It is a privilege to be with you this morning. I was trying to think of what the segue is from a regulatory update to this is what half a state government looks like and to talk to you about health care. I can't really think of one neatly, except that I was a little worried that I was the last speaker before your break in networking, and then I realized, no, you know, I'm, I'm sort of glad I'm right after regulatory update because anything I say will be slightly more uplifting, except I'm a, except I'm a worrier. So I'm going to share with you, uh, since I know there's a mix of CEOs and CFOs here, um, I'm going to share with you from where I sit and also having been a provider executive and having worked in a couple of private nonprofits. Uh, and also, when I was at Boston College School of Social Work for a couple of years, where I chaired the Health and Mental Health Program, one of the courses that I created and taught and turned out to be one of the most um, popular electives among clinical social workers, if you can imagine, was a course called Managing Resources, which, under, which basically was how do you manage money and people? Because without any money, you have no mission in the private nonprofit space. And people are our widgets. And I say that with love. I don't say that in a demeaning way at all. But if we don't nurture the human resources capital we have in a positive way, then we also, we may have our mission and money, but we won't be able to carry out our services. And while it started as a sort of a, a very small class um, with a very skeptical dean, by the time I left the school, it turned out to be the most popular elective among clinical social work students, because as I said to them, you never know. Today you're a clinical social worker, tomorrow you're a supervisor, you're a manager, you're executive director, commissioner, or you could run half a state government. In fact, when I was at MSPCC, kids not animals, although there is a connection, a sad connection, AAF was our auditors and helped us through some extraordinary uh, difficult times and organization that was rich in assets and um, let's just say liquidity wasn't so good when I first got there. And I kept thinking, well, everyone kept telling me that you know, the endowment would take care of it, the endowment would take care of it. And I thought, oh my god, it must be a huge endowment. And I realized the organization was sort of not managing its day-to-day -day operations and living off the assets of an endowment, which is when I started going around sounding not like a social worker. And I kept saying to people, if we have no money, folks, we have no mission, um, and turned the organization around. I was asked to talk to you about healthcare, uh, which I do a lot, but what I thought I would do for a few minutes while I have your attention, and again, thank you for having me, I thought I would share with you some of my perspectives, given that I'm old uh, and been around a long time, around private nonprofits. Um, and some things are opportunities and some things are things that I worry about. And they're sort of like Mary Lou's top eight. They're, they won't be anything new to any of you, um, but they include things like governance, fiduciary responsibility, internal controls, I know I do not sound like a social worker anymore, uh, human resources, diversification, succession planning, mergers and acquisitions, relationship with the public sector, uh, and then I will segue into healthcare. Does that sound all right? And then I'll open it up for questions, and which I always refer to as stump the secretary time, because somebody's going to ask me something, and I'm going to say, what? What do I do? Um, but I will, um, I'm very good at responding back to folks. So let me talk about, um, and some of you are so small, some of you are large, so um, some of this may um, be not relevant and go out and have your coffee now. So governance. One of the reasons um, when I was recruited by MSPCC that I was extraordinarily attracted by it was, and I was being recruited at the time, I was stepping down from being Commissioner of Mental Health. I was in an enviable position, asked to stay, you choose to leave, incoming governor, it's great. 
Um, but one of the things that really struck me about MSPCC was it had a very strong, what I would call, corporate board. Um, it wasn't a Friends of Mary Lou board. It was a board that truly understood their fiduciary and governance responsibility, and that is what I wanted. I wanted a board that challenged me. I wanted a board that, on occasion I didn't mind if they liked me, but, um, but it was the board for whom I was accountable for, and they were accountable for the public good. Um, one of the things I continue to see in, and again, you know, I'm talking broadly, I continue to see in boards is what I would suggest is um, not enough of an arm's length relationship with their CEOs and CFOs and their executive management staff. And it's not that I don't want there to be a strong relationship between a board and their executive management staff, um, but it needs to be with a clear understanding of what the governance and fiduciary responsibility roles are. And um, I have to tell you, still as secretary, at, in my level as secretary, I still am concerned on occasion around what I would suggest are um, the, the relationships of um, not having that sort of little bit of an arm's length relationship between a CEO and the executive management staff and the board. So I just, I just put that out there to you that I, um, uh, I worry about what I refer to as sort of the friends of kinds of boards. And boards have, as I'm sure you've heard from your audit firms, they have very clear responsibilities separate from the CEOs and their CFOs. And I say that having been on, on several private nonprofit boards, fiduciary responsibility. So right now, and they'll remain nameless, of course, because I'm among friends, um, I am dealing with two extraordinary organizations, one of whom has 10 days cash on hand and the, another one who has eight days cash on hand. I don't know about you, I didn't sleep that night, and I don't even, I'm not even on those boards or anything else, but I'm a regulatory, uh, I, I regulate them, I fund them, they're extraordinarily important in terms of what they provide in healthcare in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and that's how many days cash on hand they have. No one can operate with that many days cash on hand. So the fiduciary, so I really do go back to my no money, no mission, and I know that how hard that is in the private nonprofit space because we are very mission-driven folks. But I just have to tell you, and I am someone who at one time was accused by some of my extraordinary social work staff within MSPCC that I had no heart because I had to make some very difficult decisions about um, services, whether they were core to what we did or, what, or, or were they services that someone else was perhaps better suited to serve and do and the like. But the worries that are out there in the private nonprofit space about um, being, there's nothing wrong with having a profit, first of all, if you're a private nonprofit, as your auditors will tell you, and trust me, I'm not giving you any audit lessons today because they'll shoo me off the stage. Um, but there's nothing wrong with having profit, there's nothing wrong with having assets, and there's nothing wrong on occasion when you need to make tough decisions. And I will tell you that in this administration, we will stand with you when you need to make tough decisions. That has not always been true in state government, and uh, I've, having been in and out of state government, I've been made to feel very guilty when I was outside of state government by people inside of state government that I was either handing back a contract or I was uh, walking away from a service line that, um, that my response was, if I didn't, then they would be dealing with much more than my handing back a contract to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. They'd be dealing with an agency that was perhaps in fiscal distress. Internal controls. All right, all you CFOs out there, you must love what I'm about to say. Um, you have to have extraordinarily strong internal controls, 
with some level of redundancy. I don't know about you, but whenever I hear about people who have gift cards, I completely start, again, I'm no longer uh, running an agency, I completely start to hyperventilate because there is an, almost no controls around gift cards. You don't know if your staff is using them, they're really for the clients, who's, who's keeping a log of them and the like. Um, right now I'm dealing with a major human services organization in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts who's gotten to find themselves on page one of their local paper, which is where no one wants to find unless you've just gotten some lovely big gift from a donation from a donor, um, around internal controls, longtime staff person in this organization, and they basically, the gift cards that were coming in for people with significant disabilities, unfortunately was being sort of uh, used by the staff person for their own, for their own purposes. Um, I'm sure there's a reason behind this story. And right now, um, the head of it, the CEO, plus their board chair, plus me as Secretary of Health and Human Services, plus the commissioner, commissioner of that state agency, plus the Inspector General are spending way too much time together, if you know what I mean. I'm saying that slightly facetiously to you, but it is um, a massive now in, um, investigation within this wonderful mission-driven organization and there are, let's just say, the internal controls are lacking um, on not just things like gift cards, but there was no redundancy and there was complete trust in one person who had worked for this organization for many, many years, who turned out was, which is I'm sure for every CFO in the room, you sort of like, oh, could this really be happening? Um, was stealing thousands and thousands of dollars which was meant to serve people with profound disabilities in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I also tell you that as the woman who's now responsible for the largest part of the state budget, which happens to be Medicaid. So this is what half a state government looks like. I'm actually responsible for 56% of state spending, and I actually take the fact that they're tax dollars very, very seriously. 40% of the state budget is Medicaid, which is 1.9 million uh, people, which is about 29, 30% of the population um, with incomes under um, the 100% of the federal poverty level is just about $12,600. So you can qualify for Medicaid at 133% of the federal poverty level. So that's just a little bit over $16,000 um, for Medicaid. Um, it was growing when I became secretary. So I chaired the Health and Mental Health Program at Boston College School of Social Work. And so I taught health and mental health policy, of course. I taught, I taught sections on Medicaid. Um, and when I was announced as the incoming secretary, I sort of saw this trajectory of um, the, the growth of Medicaid as a portion of state budget. And Medicaid was expected to grow. So imagine, you're already 40%, you're 38% of the state budget at that time. And you were projected to grow 15% for the next two years. Um, and I remember seeing this chart and thinking, I was sorry I didn't see the chart the day before the governor offered me the job, um, where I might still be teaching health and mental health policy rather than trying to um, manage the beast that Medicaid is, extraordinary important service for people. When I became secretary, it became clear that the priority in the prior administration, and this, I don't, it's not castigating responsibility or blame or anything, was around enrollment, because we know in our state we have a very strong belief that's really important for people to have health care coverage. Very, very important. So that was really the focus, was getting people on health care coverage, and we continue to have the highest rate of people on health care coverage in the United States. 
and I'd far prefer being Massachusetts and trying to struggle with the issues of affordability and access and quality from a state where we have almost universal coverage than in states such as Florida and Texas, which have 18, 22% of their populations without any health insurance. So I'd much rather be where we are. But it was clear that we didn't have, Medicaid is a public insurance program. And what we didn't have was essentially um, what I would call good internal controls. So we weren't managing the, the things that you do to manage an insurance program, was you um, do redeterminations, you check people's eligibility, you, you run up um, uh, data files with the Department of Revenue, you check with the Department of all the things you do to main, maintain um, uh, the strong program integrity to ensure the public confidence, to instill the public confidence that people who are on Medicaid um, are eligible for Medicaid. So we've done that. Um, three years later, I can't believe it's been three years. Sometimes it feels like it's been 50 years, and sometimes it feels like I just became secretary. Um, in three years, we have been able to manage the growth of Medicaid to about 2%. Um, this year, it's actually 4.4% because of some timing issues, but you would all understand about timing issues. Um, but the true growth is about 2.2%, which is so much different, and that is not by changing eligibility, not by changing benefits, um, and in fact by um, putting in almost between 2016 and 2022 about a billion dollars in behavioral health services, which is um, way, way overdue. But the program, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I had not had strong internal controls and uh, redundant systems. It's still a work in progress. Medicaid will always be a work in progress, but it's really important for maintaining your missions to have strong, redundant systems and internal controls. Human resources. So here's where I'm going to worry a little bit with you, because people are, um, particularly in healthcare and human services, people are our widgets. That's how we perform our work. Um, and there's two things uh, that you probably won't hear from auditors about, but that I want to put out for you to think about. Um, one is sort of a, how do you take a challenge and turn it into an opportunity. And then the other one is a worry on the federal level. So the, the reality is, if you look at the demographics, we will not have enough people to do the jobs um, that we currently expect people to do. You just look at the uh, demographics. Uh, in three years, we will have more people over the age of 60 than we will have under the age of 21. Um, I don't like to refer to it as the silver tsunami since I'm one of those individuals. Um, but the reality is we have fewer and fewer people who will be available to do the jobs the way we currently have the jobs that are out there in health and human services. And so I challenge all of us to think about how is it we can have the functions that are very important for us to do with fewer staff using the power of technology. Now, technology, I'm not talking robots, although I did see a very cute robot at the MIT Age Lab the other day that I did want to take home with me. Um, but I'm not talking robots. What I'm talking about is the power of technology to augment staff's work. I'm not saying as a way to save money, because technology costs money. Um, they won't, doesn't cost you health insurance and the like. But we need to think differently about the functions that are very important for what we provide, because the reality is they're 
will not be enough bodies in five, six years. Some of you probably have huge vacancies now, part of it's salaries and turnover and the like. But if you just look at the demographics, the reality is um, there will not be enough people to do the jobs the way we currently have the jobs out there. So to the extent we think about tools and other things to augment the critical skills that we need people to people touch, I would challenge all of us to start thinking about that if you have not already. The other is a worry. I am no, and it'll feed a little bit into what I mentioned about healthcare, and it's called public charges. Does anybody know what the term public, does anyone ever, anyone ever heard the term public charges before? So um, longstanding in the United States, and I'm sure many of you um, have individuals who work with you who are born in other countries who are here on either um, temporary work statuses or have green cards. I'm not talking about individuals who are naturalized, right? But immigration, and particularly in human services and in certain parts of healthcare, very much newcomers to our country are very much the backbone of many of our human services programs and healthcare programs. Well, one of the um, long-standing, so I don't want, and it, all you have to do is like just Google public charges. So for long-standing, um, for 20 years, um, how one becomes, is eligible to become, to get a green card, become a legally um, permanent resident in the United States, or change their status, not to become naturalized, but basically think green cards. You basically have to demonstrate to the federal government that you are um, someone who will not become sort of a dependent on the public sector. And the, the rules have been very, very clear for many, many years. And um, this is one of the things about this new federal government. Um, so they have, I've, I've actually, the leaked copy of the new rules, um, which uh, Governor Baker and I and a whole bunch of others of us will be commenting on. But this, what this basically will do is further restrict individuals who want to be legal, le legally present in our country as immigrants. The things that would count so say someone moves to the United States in the process of getting their green card, they have a child. Their child is a naturalized US citizen. If that child had Medicaid, for example, that child's Medicaid would count against the family's status of becoming a legally present resident of the United States. Um, does this make any sense to you? So like there used to be sort of broad categories of what counted in terms of public benefits that an individual um, might be denied their uh, a green card, but it was fairly broad. It will become narrower and narrower and narrower, even further limiting what the opportunities are for people to become uh, legal residents in the United States. And wherever you come down on immigration and, um, and uh, immigration reform and the like, it is a form of just restricting individuals to have access to the United States. So the impact for an individual seeking admission or seeking to adjust their status to permanent residence, basically obtaining a green card, um, will become much more restricted than it has in the past. So it's uh, something, wherever I go and speak, I just tell people, if you, if you bring in foreign workers from other countries who are here, um, either under temporary status or uh, have green cards or are interested in becoming United States citizens, it potentially is gonna become that much more difficult in the near future. So I just put that out there. Diversification. Now, I'm about to be arguing against my own self-interest here. Um, if you want to be a healthy private nonprofit, 
um, you need to diversify your funding sources. I say that having once worked in a private nonprofit who had 99% of their funding from the Department of Mental Health, of which I later became Commissioner of Mental Health, um, and my job there was to diversify the agency's funding base. And you say, why? Well, because one, you never know. You know, some commissioner may change a funding stream, funding stream that comes down through the federal government goes away. It just helps to um, keep you healthy financially, if for no other reason. It also, um, frankly, I've seen the experience, I've experienced organizations who then come to me who have 99% of their funding or 98% or 95% of their funding with one state agency and when a number of contracts or financial arrangements change, they somehow feel like they've lost a, it, it becomes very personal. And it's not personal because my next message to you is I'm not a friend, I'm government. Just like your board chair should not be your friend. I want a very healthy, respectful relationship with all of you. I've been one of you. Actually, I got sued by my old buddies when I first became secretary. I'll tell you that story in a second. Um, but I'm not a friend. Government is a regulator. They're a licensor. They're a contractor. They're an auditor. I know it sounds horrible, doesn't it? Um, at least I didn't put out 700 pages of some regulatory thing. It made me feel good about government there for a second. Um, but it is a business relationship. And I know that's hard for some of you who sort of grew up in the health and human services world and whatever, but some of the worst things I have experienced and have tried to untangle is what, was, what is basically a business relationship that somehow morphed into, it's really a friend relationship, because I can call the commissioner, I can call Mary Lou, I can, I can take care of this, but we are bound by all these rules and regulations and statutes. Uh, and so I think diversification actually in part helps maintain a little bit semblance of that relationship. And yes, do we want to be friendly? Of course. We want to be able to sit at the table. We want to be able to discuss things respectfully. Um, um, I, as a social worker, I value um, different perspectives because it's from those different perspectives that the, I think the best public policies come out. But it's when these relationships morph into what something that they are not is when I actually see um, issues by both some government folks who, in trying to be helpful, they break some rules, or um, um, or a private nonprofit who feels that somehow the relationship has fundamentally changed and they're they're not a provider of the Commonwealth or something. It's just. Um, it's not healthy. So I, um, and I say that having been an executive of a provider agency. Finally, mergers and acquisitions. Ugh, is that messy out there. So it's, I feel sometimes like I'm a marriage broker. I don't even know what a marriage broker is, but sometimes that's what I feel like. Um, I will often have two organizations come and they sit with me and they wanna know if they should merge. Um, and I sit there and I say, okay, so what are your missions? What are your values? How are you organized? How you, have you looked at your, the financials? Have you determined, has the boards come together? Is there two board committees? Like who are the negotiators? And I sit there and, you, and I just have, I have, like, I have like this little list now. Because I've done it enough where I have like this list. Um, 
And usually by we get to um, point three, they'll often say, well, you know, we haven't really thought about that. And I say, well, you know what? But our services are similar, is usually what I'll get. Our similar, we're similar, we don't compete with one another. Okay, that may be, but do your missions line up? Do your values line up? How do your financials line up? What, what is the strength that each of you bring together? And often what I experience is there is panic by one of the parties. Um, Sometimes greed, I'm being really sort of loose this morning, I haven't had enough coffee, I think. Um, greed on someone other's part, or someone thinks the CEO is about to retire, and here's my opportunity um, as the one where I'm not retiring, as opposed to going through sort of that very formal due diligence, or not very formal, it doesn't be that formal, a due diligence of does this make sense. So I'm happy, and government should be happy about mergers and acquisitions, but I, um, I believe that that really rests with you all. Um, and my commitment and the commitment of this administration has been is that we will take down, we will not be a barrier um, to that. And trust me, I know government can be a barrier. Uh, sometimes it's unintended consequences. I'm quite aware of that. Um, but oftentimes it's like, well, but we really, but we will not be a barrier. Let me just make it clear. We will not be a barrier to this. Um, in fact, in a couple of recent mergers, or mergers, we have, um, we have made it clear through particularly the public health licensing process of sort of um, being, a, being a true partner in the, that part process in order to allow the mergers to happen. But um, all I would say is, for those of you who are thinking of, of mergers and acquisitions, um, the best ones happen when both parties see the positives for both organizations, and it doesn't feel as if someone is um, sort of merging either out of uh, panic or merging out of desperation. And then I did mention the relationship with the public sector, um, and there's two. So for those of you who are um, heavily dependent on federal, and this is, I'm gonna go into my worries in healthcare, who are heavily dependent on federal financing, um, and federal grants, um, I would urge you going forward to really go into those with eyes wide open. Because one of our experiences with our new federal friends, um, and you can, dis you, can, you, can, you can interpret that any way you want, uh, is that I worry less about what Congress will do, um, frankly, um, at this moment, and more about what executive actions will do um, which would then decrease potentially um, federal funds, and you should have no expectations that there is a huge well of state dollars to pick up the loss of federal funds. Uh, Governor Baker made it very clear in the fall that the federal government, government made any um, cuts in uh, women's planning, family planning, and the like, that Massachusetts would step up and, um, and fund uh, those very important women's health services, which we have done in Massachusetts. But the number of things that are sort of coming down the pike that we worry about, everything from housing to SNAP benefits to block-granting Medicaid to what other kinds of federal grants you may have, um, I would be cautious about those opportunities 
um, take them with wide eyes wide open, but with no expectation that the state would be sort of the backstop in the event that those federal funds were to diminish. And uh, we do believe that that is actually, uh, we see, we, what we see now is what I refer to as the chipping away at the edges of uh, a number of federal grants. And what's, for me, particularly terrifying is since public health is also my responsibility is 45% um, of the funding of the Department of Public Health in Massachusetts is federally funded. Now some of those are pass-through grants to a number of wonderful community organizations. Um, but I would just be, um, I worry about that because I often get people to call like, well, if I get this federal fund and at the end of it, well, how many of you have ever, don't raise your hands, I don't want to see how many, um, would say, and at the end, what's your sustainability? Remember, you know that famous sustainability question at the end of like every federal grant application? And usually people are like, well, and I'm going to be seeking state dollars to pick up this very important service at the end of um, my three-year grant. Um, I would be very cautious about that. And then finally, like I said about state, we are friendly, but not your friends. Um, we want to work very collaboratively with you because the only way I can serve the mission within Health and Human Services is through um, working with all of you. So that's sort of my overall. Let me, and let me, I'm going to end on healthcare and then open it up uh, for the stump the secretary um, time. Healthcare. So a couple things about Massachusetts. I'm going to be a little parochial. So first of all, Massachusetts is the healthiest state in the United States, we finally beat out Hawaii because they must have taken out weather as one of the conditions for healthiest states. <laughs> Second is we are very proud to have um, the highest rate of insurance coverage uh, in the United States, it hovers around 97% of our population has healthcare coverage. That was very important in our state uh, a number of years ago to pass our version of universal healthcare coverage. We have yet to really seriously tackle the cost of healthcare. And I know as all of you who are CFOs and CEOs, probably one of the things you worry most about is what is your annual cost of your health insurance gonna be for your employees um, and how much more of a high deductible plan and how much more um, can be passed on to employees in order to keep your costs down. And that is, I would say that that conversation is getting more attention within, well, not attention, but more focus within um, both the administration and with the legislature. As many of you know, if you follow, uh, the Senate has passed its version of a health care cost bill. Um, the House will come out with a bill probably towards the end of May um, uh, around what they're intend to do around bringing down costs. And we're gonna be coming out with some um, levers around pharmacy uh, from the state side, from the executive branch side. But that, is, but that is an area that I know for all of you who run private nonprofits, and certainly when I was um, running a private nonprofit, I think I probably changed my, who was my health insurance carrier. In the nine and a half years I was at MSPCC, I probably changed to four times. And always felt like somehow I was not, a, um, I was not advantageous um, in those conversations at all. On the federal side, I don't, quite honestly, for the next couple of years with this federal government, I think we may hear rhetoric. Um, I don't think we're going to see a lot of action on um, the federal side that will be a 
help to states. Um, I think we will continue to see, you know, this is, I don't, my crystal ball is hazy, and anybody tells you that their crystal ball is clear when it comes to healthcare, I wouldn't believe them, because there's just so much noise out there. But here's a couple things I do think is gonna happen with this federal administration, because we've seen it already, which is using executive actions and executive orders as a way to sort of um, dilute uh, the positives that were in the Affordable Care Act. All of us would say that the Affordable Care Act needs revision. Um, anytime you pass a massive piece of legislation, you need to come back um, and improve upon it. I mean, anyone who's been engaged in legislation would know that. Um, you know, not repeal, but revise, improve upon the things that we know need to be improved upon. That does not seem to be the intent of this um, federal administration. And the other thing I do believe, and actually I got to read about it in the paper, but um, I sort of believe this anyway, that when it comes to Medicaid, I believe what's gonna happen is the federal government is going to suggest that Medicaid programs be block granted. Block grants are a double-edged sword for states. Block grants often offer flexibility with less money. So we remove the rules, give you the money, you go figure out um, what you do with it. I guess the, what I would say about um, block granting Medicaid is there's one place in the United States and its territories where we have block granted Medicaid. Anybody know where that is? Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Um, anybody know why that's a complete disaster in Puerto Rico? Medicaid? Medicaid. I'm not talking about hurricane effects. Because what a block grant basically does is it, it's, it's a block grant. So Massachusetts uh, welcomed a number of individuals from Puerto Rico to reside here while Puerto Rico's infrastructure is improved upon again so people can go home. And one of the challenges was people who, if they came from, Mass from Puerto Rico to Massachusetts, didn't want to be on, didn't want to leave their Puerto Rico Medicaid program. And not because the Puerto Rico Medicaid benefits are better than what we have in Massachusetts, not at all actually. But if they gave up their Puerto Rico Medicaid card and came on to Massachusetts Medicaid, which is allowable, in these kinds of circumstances, they wouldn't be able to go back onto Puerto Rico Medicaid because the Puerto Rico Medicaid has a wait list of thousands and thousands of people. So that is a consequence of a Medicaid program. So when people, when people sort of intellectualize with me and say, so what's wrong with that thinking about Medicaid as a block grant program? I'm like, go look at Puerto Rico. When you think that Medicaid system works well in Puerto Rico, come back and talk to me and then I'm happy to have that conversation. Um, the one place where I, um, so here's what I think um, was gonna happen in Massachusetts uh, in terms of our own state law, which will not have an immediate impact um, on those of us uh, who are in the private nonprofit sector. It might in like a year from now, but it won't happen this year, is you will see, I do believe, some um, modest insurance reforms that will give uh, employers some ability um, to sort of bring down some of the healthcare costs. I'm being a little vague because the House bill's not out yet. I sort of know what some of the uh, conversations are gonna be. Um, the, the House is very responsive to the needs of employers, so they're trying to find the levers that will give employers some more tools in order to, to bring down some costs um, and not sort of have it come in, you know, come out of the pockets of your employees. It's something I would just encourage all of you um, uh, to watch 
and through your various trade organizations and the like would be to really weigh in on. So for me, and I'm being a little selfish, I'm a little parochial, the, actually the, the biggest expenditure right now in the Medicaid program happens to be pharmacy. And so I do, which has doubled in cost, double in expenditures over the past uh, four years. So it went from 1.1, I only talk in billions and millions anymore, $1.1 billion to $2.2 billion, and it's scheduled to add another $80 million in the next three years as a result of some of the orphan drugs. So I'm no longer the favorite of anybody in the biotech pharmaceutical industry because I'm sort of coming at them hard on the Medicaid program to um, negotiate fairer price, prices. And I do think you will see something coming out in pharmacy uh, from the legislature in this coming year. But having said that, it's also an election year. So you never know what happens in election year in Massachusetts. So I'd be the first one to say, not really sure um, what will happen with that. So with that, let me, I've sort of done a little bit of a potpourri, try to take it up. You'll have lots of um, opportunity today with AANF to go through many things that are in your minds on a more granular basis. One of the things I did learn as being a private nonprofit was to listen to my auditors. Um, they never, no, even when I didn't like what they said, um, it was very important um, to listen to one's auditors and help um, take their information into our own internal controls because it is part of being a private nonprofit that um, instills the public's confidence, however you define that, into your work. Often people will ask to look at your financials, and part of what those financials are, are your audit statements. So I'd be happy, so thank you for having me, and I'd be happy to open it to any questions. Oh, yes, thank you. Hi, thank you, uh, Secretary Sutters. Carla McCall, co-managing partner at AEF. Yeah. Um, I always say we're the friendly auditors, so we are going to help you before the government auditors come in. So, <laughs> um, But I have a question about, you talked about the retiring workforce and, mm -hmm. and use of technology. And when I think back three to five years ago when we were helping nonprofits use technology to find efficiency, especially when it comes to electronic signatures, we found the government was far behind in their regulations. So how do you see the government keeping up with artificial intelligence, which will take jobs potentially from people, or at least part of it, and how do you see them keeping up with uh, what the private sector seems to be always three steps ahead? So I would, I would absolutely agree with you that um, innovation has been much more in the private sector with government slower to um, embrace. I don't think that that is true in this administration um, at all, actually. Um, you know, it's taken three years, but I was like, so why is it we don't allow telemedicine? Why is it we don't allow telehealth? Why is it we don't? Um, what are the regulatory barriers that pro have prohibited um, innovation in the, in the private sector? So I think you're going to see, if you have some very specific examples, you can email me. I do respond to all my emails. I'm a little slower than I used to be, I will confess. Um, but it's marylou.sutters at state.ma.us, and they come straight to me. The only other person who checks them is Teresa Reynolds, who's worked for me for 20-some years, so she's like my alter ego. So if you have some specific examples, I'm happy to take them on. Okay. We're gonna hit like an employee um, tsunami um, if we think we can continue to do the work we do the way we've been doing it. 
Anybody else? Hi there, my name is Yvette Viaberry. I'm a CFO here in Massachusetts. And I have a question. For all of Massachusetts? <laughs> in Lawrence, Lawrence Community Works. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. Hi. So I have a question about MassHealth. Yep. We received our I have first a lot of questions fine. about MassHealth, so what's yours? <laughs> I'm not sure if anybody else received their first fine um, due to EMAC. Uh -huh. And um, we are very EMAC concerned. EMAC2. I'm sorry? It's EMAC2, yeah. EMAC2. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of part-time employees who are not eligible for our health insurance package and some of them are on mass health and we also have hired full-time employees who denied our health insurance and we have a generous package where the organization pays for 80 percent of the um, insurance yep. so they denied ours on are on mass health yet they continue to stay on mass health so right. I'd like to know what the procedures are for doing any kind of income verification because I feel like we as nonprofits are being penalized for the department who is not continuing to regulate. So we do do, in, so as you know as an employer, you can sign an attestation and get the list of individuals sort of match your employers when, who is on MassHealth. And you can submit information to MassHealth who will do an income verification. And if MassHealth was incorrect, you will get a credit on the next quarter's EMAC. So we have to disclose our employees to you. You're well, not no, actually. you disclose, you already give those files to the Department of Labor. Right, quarterly. Right. Okay. So if we submit that, then they will get off if, the if list. And if we are wrong, so I put a team together of individuals, uh -huh. and if we are wrong, you will get a credit on the next quarter's. Um, I see. And what do you mean by wrong? If, we're, if MassHealth is wrong. If, MassHealth, if the MassHealth filed to the Department of Labor, mm -hmm. all this comes through DUA. If so, if the MassHealth filed the DUA was incorrect, you will get a credit. So I'm not completely clear. So if my full-time employees who are on MassHealth and are over income and continue to take if, mass if they're over income for mass wrong? health and you submit that information mm -hmm. the individual will lose their mass health and you will also get a credit on the following for paying your the penalty I see okay so yeah. there is no automatic income verification on the department side we would have to disclose the new income so we do to you. we do matches all the time but mm -hmm. they're not done every day against 1.9 million people on the mass health program so when the data feed goes from MassHealth to DUA, mm -hmm. and you get your assessment based on the DUA file, mm -hmm. it's based on a file from MassHealth. It's okay. a pretty current file from MassHealth. And if that person has made too much money to then be eligible for MassHealth, mm -hmm. the person will lose their MassHealth, and you, will get, you, and, and you will also, as the employer, will get a credit back for the assessment. Okay, and one final question. Yeah. How often do you do the income verifications? I know so, it's not, you know, daily is too much, but how about annually? That would be helpful. Oh, no, we do them every month. Hmm. Okay. We do them every month. The other thing that came up, yeah. which is interesting, so when we did all of the um, listening sessions and the regs for, or the Department of Labor did the regs, um, no one raised the issue of minors. A lot of seasonal employees came up, but not minors. Mm -hmm. So while this quarter will be messy, in going forward, 
um, starting the next quarter, anyone under the age of 18 will be automatically eliminated from the data file from MassHealth to the Department of Labor. Oh, okay. um, because for yeah, you we hire a kid a who's like 17 years old right. who's on their parents' insurance, they could never be on your insurance to begin with. But it was interesting is no employer group raised that during the regulatory review process. Okay. Um, but in the business meetings, um, so we do now every other week business calls, the Secretary of Labor and myself with the business community to go through the EMAC process. Okay. Um, and the issue of under 18s came up for the very first time last Friday. And over the weekend, we came up with a, actually do an emergency regulation, which is, which is fine, we can do that. Um, but we will also, the data files will not include anyone under the age of 18 going over. Thank, Thank you. you. I do realize that the EMAC 2 is, um, the, the second assessment to EMAC is controversial. What I will tell you is that the, um, it is a two-year assessment um, because of the migration of individuals who are eligible for their commercial, for their employer's insurance and the migration on to MassHealth. Um, as, you, as you may know, we asked to move those individuals onto the connector because of going back and forth from the connector in MassHealth, which was sort of the legislature is not up for that conversation this year. I do realize how controversial. We do have, just so you know, so all of you belong to employer groups, um, we do have the secretary, uh, Secretary Cost and I have a weekly Friday afternoon, every other week, Friday afternoon, call with the business community through the trade groups to go through EMAC. So if you have questions, the private nonprofit um, group is on it, all the, hosp the hospital associations and others. So I would go to your trade group. And if you wanted to give me your contact information, um, I'd be happy to follow up on yours um, directly. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for what you do, I should say that. Thank you.